Hi everyone, welcome to the next episode of Missing Bits, the podcast for amputees in conjunction with Limbs for Life. Today I'm talking to Andrew Fairburn. Andrew is 49 and lives in Perth. He's a left below knee amputee and a member of our National Council. And the, the, the below knee, mate, that's not quite right, is it? It's through knee? No, no, it is below knee. Okay. Um, the real the real name of it is left transtibial amputation. Right, gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. So, welcome aboard, Andrew. For those listening, I send out a little questionnaire for people to fill in just so I can get an idea of who I'm talking to, and I've been looking very much forward to this one. There's a lot to get through, I think. You seem to keep very busy. Tell me what keeps you busy and how you get the energy for it. Uh, what keeps me busy? Okay. Um, well, I suppose to start with my job, um, I've... I've been, I've been working since I was 15 and I joined, when I joined the Royal Australian Navy as a musician. Um, so I've played music all my life. I've had lots and lots of different jobs working um, for not-for-profit organisations, for state government, for federal government, for, um, and in private organisations. I've worked as a kitchen hand. I've worked as a school photographer. Um, I've worked um, all sorts of different stuff. Um, but at the moment, I'm working doing a project for an organisation called People with Disabilities Western Australia um, called the Diversity Field Officer Service. And in that particular job, I go out and I look for small to medium-sized businesses and help them to embrace and build their capacity around diversity. Right. Um, yeah. That does seem busy to me. I'm, I'm tired just listening to it. <laughs> So have you, have you always been in Perth? Um, well, yes and no. I've spent most of my life in Perth. Um, my parents were um, 10 pound poms. They came out to Australia in 1967. I married one and, <laughs> um, my um My sister, uh, they landed in Perth in 1967 and then they moved straight away over to Melbourne. And my sister was born in Melbourne, um, and then my dad was an engineer, so he ended up moving to Tasmania. So I was born in Hobart in 1969. Right. And in by the time I had my first birthday, we were back in Perth. Right. And so that was in 1970. Um, then from 1970 to 1984, I lived in Perth. Um, so I was 15 when I left Perth again and joined the Navy. Um, spent 10 years on the East Coast, then came back to Perth um, as my lovely wife just reminded me 23 years ago. Goodness. Um, so I came back to Perth with a wife and two children, um, and I still have the same wife and I still have the same two children. There's no swapping them out. Nah. <laughs> no point, mate, no point. <laughs> Where did you go to school then? Um... Primary school was a little school called um, Hampton Park Primary School and then to North Morley Primary School. And then I did, um, what, about two and a half years. I think it was eight, nine, yeah, um, two and a half years at Morley Senior High School before I left school, left school and joined the Navy. Right. So I didn't actually finish high school. Okay. Um, so there was, um, there was mum and dad and you and... 
my 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 sister, and I've got two older brothers who were both born in England. Right. So the four of, the four of them came out as ten pound poms, and my sister and I were both born in Australia. So I'm a first generation Australian. Sure. Where from in England? Um, little place called Kent, uh, Maidstone in Kent. Right. Which is, um, I believe, south of uh, south of London. You need to get over there and have a look at it. Well, I have been to I have been to London. Um, I was in London in 1987, and we were there when I was in the navy. We were there for the Royal Tournament, and it was just before the 1988, which was obviously the 150th um, celebration of Australia. Right. Um, so we were there as guests of the British government. Yep. Um, but we didn't. But we didn't have any time to get down. I didn't have, we did, basically we were there for six weeks and we had no time off in that six weeks. We were working um, all the time. So I couldn't get down to, to see, you know, where the folks were born or any of that sort of stuff. Yeah, um, sure. But hey, bucket list, mate. That's what, that, that's what they're there for. Yeah. We just, um, we just spent uh, Christmas and New Year over there with my wife's family in Cambridge. So that was, that was oh, going nice. over to meet all those people. And at Christmas time as well, did it snow? There was a little bit of snow. It was really cold, mate. Really cold. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, um, slap yourself in the face cold. It, it's, yeah, it was freezing. But fun. Wow. There was a lot yeah, of... Yeah, yeah, totally. I'll give you an example of how cold it is. Um, my wife's cousin's husband, we went over to visit them. Um, he keeps his beer outside the back door on the porch. Nice. So you just you just open the back door and grab a beer because there's no no need for a fridge. Wow, you can, can imagine how long your beard last here in Australia. I mean, like in the, like in the summer here, forty degrees. I know. Let's see how let's see how long that will last. <laughs> so tell me tell me about joining the navy. Um, look, I joined the navy because I wanted to play music professionally, and there was. You know, like this, we're talking about the mid '80s here, um, and there was—I could have stayed at school and gone on to uni and done a degree, but I—I I just didn't like school. I didn't like being at school. I couldn't—I didn't get school. Yep. Um, to me, school was just to play music and hang out with mates, and you know, I suppose I got into some trouble, um, but nothing—not nothing serious, but. Um, I needed to. I needed to. You know, I had the opportunity, so I just grabbed it. You know, um, and mum and dad. Mum and dad had to sign me off to join the navy because I was only fifteen. Sure. Um, and they couldn't have done it fast enough. You know, they. they <laughs> you know, because um, my oldest brother was in the navy at the time as well, so he joined up when he was fifteen. Sure. Uh, my old man. My old man was British Army, so I suppose it's sort of like a thing that was uh, intergenerational. Um, and come down the track now. I did. I did. I did nine uh, nine years in the service, and my wife did six years. And our daughter, um, she's now just started her eighth year in the Australian Army. So she's now fourth generation because also my grandfather was military as well. So she's now fourth generation in our family who's been in the military. Yeah, that's that's quite a, a legacy. Yeah, totally, absolutely, yeah. My uh, yeah. my wife's dad was in the British Navy, and so far in the family, nobody has followed him. Really? 
usually works that you know, like it's if that if that sort of thing is there and, and you're sort of brought up like that. I mean, my old man was a very strict disciplinarian. Yeah. Um and which was, you know, like that and, and that's cool. I mean we I know right from wrong and I know you know, I know that and I suppose in some ways that was one of the reasons also I wanted to join up and get away from home. But you go from that strict disciplinarian being at home to even stricter, more disciplinarian being in the military because the military was like that back then. It's changed a lot now. Um, but, you know, like you wouldn't, I wouldn't say boo to a goose, you know, like, and, and you, you're taught respect and self-discipline and all that sort of stuff as you go through. Sure. Um, but you're also, you're also taught, you know, teamwork and mateship and looking after your mates and making sure, you know, you, that you, you know, if we went, you know, well, I went to Singapore and, and there's cheap, there was cheap beer and there's cheap women and there's all sorts of stuff. And, you look after your mates, you know, that because they, 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 that's what it's about. Sure. What happened after the Navy? Um, I got out of the Navy in 1993, so after nine years, and decided that we would pack up in Victoria and come back to Perth. Um, so, I, as I say, I came back with a wife and two children. Our kids were three years old. I guess sort of twins, a boy and a girl. Um, and we came back and then... Because I'd done that much time, we, we had some we had some money saved away. We ended up moving back into the um, mum and dad's place for a while, right? Um, and then we rented a house and started sort. Of, I suppose started sort of rebuild your life outside the military, um, with no sort of constraints around you must be here at this time and all that sort of stuff. So it was a bit of a challenge, sure. Um, but it was also um, it's a it's a life lesson, you know. But you take I mean, the old saying goes, you can take the man out of the Navy, but you can't take the Navy out of the man. <laughs> and even even to today, I mean, I'm talking, like I turned 50 in January, and I hate it when people are late. I hate it when people don't turn up on time. Yep. Um, I, you know, and, and it's like my wife will say, so how long is it going to take us to get there? Half an hour. What time do we have to leave? An hour beforehand. <laughs> you know, that stuff. Um, because it's ingrained, and you just, it's like, I know I don't have to do it, but it's so... In grade, what time do I have to be at the airport? It says you're 45 minutes before a flight. Great, we'll be there an hour and a half before just to make sure everything goes right. Because sure. that's that's the way it was, you know. And and I was brought up like that. You know, we breakfast was at seven o'clock in the morning. You're at the table at seven o'clock in the morning. Otherwise, the old man give you a whack around the head. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> so you know these these things. It's it's a learning thing of life. Tell me about being a full time student and buying a house. Oh my gosh! Um, we bought. <laughs> I decided I, I was bumming around a few different jobs. At that stage, I was actually working for the education department as a uh, for the school of instrumental music, teaching music. And part of my professional development was that they because I've got a I, I had a certificate in classical music from the navy from when I got out of the service. Right. But part of my professional development was to go back and. Um, get some more qualifications. Um, particularly what they were looking for was an education degree. So I thought, okay, I'm training classical music as an oboist and a clarinet player. I'll go and do classical music. And started looking at the courses and stuff like that, and I thought, nah, I don't want to do this. So what I ended up doing is I ended up buying myself a, a very cheap, nasty saxophone. And believe it or not, I found my first teacher in... Um, High Street Mall, and he was busking. Right. 
And I just loved the sound of what he could do with a saxophone. It was just amazing. So I got, I was working as a kitchen hand at the time, again, um, and I and I said to him, I, I was talking to him at a break, and I said to him, mate, have you ever, like, would you teach someone how to play? He goes, yeah. And I said, okay, well, so six months, I had six months worth of lessons with him. Then I applied for the West Australian Academy of Performing Art. Yep. Um, and I was one of seven saxophone players they took in that year. Um, and that was in the year 2000. And there was 140 saxophone players from all over the world auditioned. It's by audition. And I got one of the seven spots out of that. So, and that was after six months of like learning because I knew nothing about jazz or, or jazz or contemporary music at all. Everything I'd done was classical. Right. And he, he said, and so I went to him for lessons every week and we practiced, I practiced my backside off. So I ended up at uni. Now that same year, some friends of ours from our church came to us and said, look, we need to sell our house. And um, we go, oh, we really hadn't thought about buying a house. I, in fact, I never really wanted to buy a house at all. Yep. But we had a look at it, and it, this is going back to the year 2000, as I said, and it was $79,900. Right. For a three-bedroom, brick veneer home, um, old house, about, about 30, it was about 35 years old then. Right. Um, we went to the, uh, the block of land is humongous. Um, so we went to the uh, mortgage broker, and said, how much money can we, you know, like, can we really, can we afford this? Um, and we told him straight up, you know, like, I was going back to full-time study. My wife was only working part-time as an education assistant in a primary school. And he said, yeah, you can do this. No problem at all. So <laughs> he has a line for us. So I signed the papers to go to, to go to uni to start my degree. And then three days later, we signed up to buy the house. Wow, we. <laughs> um so we, I, went, I then spent the next five years at uni, um, four years full-time and one year part-time, um, and my wife, again, working um, uh, part-time as well as an education assistant, and I was doing some teaching on the side so I could, we, so I could get some money on top of, like, our study and stuff, and we, and we managed to get through it all right. Um, there was a lot of heartache in it. Um, because there was no money. I mean, seriously, we had next to nothing. Yep, um, I understand that. But we we saw the goal. We saw the prize at the end was me to get my qualifications so I can, you know, get a better teaching job or get a better performance job or whatever, and, um, and then we're going to have a house. So come down the track to three years, three uh, two years ago, um, when we actually sold it because of the issues I had with my amputation and not being able to have any, not being able to work and stuff like that. Yeah. And I couldn't get it. So we ended up having to sell the house, but I can guarantee you, we got an awful lot more than 79,000 bucks for it. Sure. Yeah. Sure. That's a, that's a big story. Cause that's a lot of stress. Yes. Yes. Very much. So very, very much. So, um, and one of the, I think the re, the biggest reason what we decided because what we wanted to do with it, we wanted to develop it into three units because it's a big block of land. Um, and we talked to a couple of people, um, some builders, and we talked to our, our, our mortgage broker, and we found out that they, there's so many of these big blocks of land around where we live that there was going to be an oversupply, 
sure. and then we would never get our money back. Um, we, we could build the units and we could have afforded at that time to do it, but it was just, we would probably have never got our money back for it. Yep. Um, and then I went through my, like the infection and stuff that I ended up having, which I ended up losing my leg, but my wife was also diagnosed with breast cancer. Oh dear. Um, so we then sat down and said, yeah, okay, um, I got my amputation done. She got clear of her breast. She had her breast cancer surgery done, went through her therapies and all that sort of stuff. And we sat down at the end of it and said, we really need this stress. Yep. Um, or can we go out and use the money to, um, because we'd also then bought another house for our son and we'd helped our daughter buy a house as well. So, um, we, we just didn't need the stress and it was just too much. It was getting on top of us. So we said, you know what, let's bail out and, you know, we're not going to lose, that's for sure. But, um, and it, but the only thing we, we're going to gain a hell of a lot of, um, uh, less stress in our life from not having to worry about the house and having tenants and all that sort of stuff in it. Yep. Um, so we ended up selling it, um, which is a good thing because now we don't have the stress of, of having to worry about tenants and fixing it and all that sort of stuff. And we do have, um, and I don't actually have, well, we do have a mortgage, but I don't have a mortgage. Our son lives in our, we bought a duplex. Right. Okay. So our son lives in one half, which is the the half that Kay and I own. And our daughter lives, uh, uh, bought the other half. Right. Now, our son lives in that in ours and pays rent. Yep. And we live in our daughter's and pay her rent. Right. Got it. Got it? Got it. So, so um, as mud. I get, yeah, totally. And it, <laughs> it, it, sounds, it sounds totally dodgy, but it's not. It works perfectly for us and our situation with... Um, because our son has an intellectual disability, gotcha. uh, so he doesn't. He he would never. Um, he works. He, he works in open employment and, and stuff, but he would never have enough income to be able to buy a house. Yeah. Um, so at at sort of like at his twentieth birthday, coming around to his twentieth birthday, I said to Kay, very tongue in cheek, um, I think it's either time he left or I left. <laughs> uh, she said, "Well, if you're leaving, I'm coming." <laughs> and I yep. said, yeah, that's the, the deal. I said, but I would much rather he left. So I threw it into her ball court and said, fix it, basically. So she ended up, yeah, fixing it. Yep. So it cost me a lot more, but in the long run, it's awesome. It's gonna, It works out so much better. That sounds great. Um, yeah. <laughs> it works for us. Let's put it that way. We, we've got a lot of people freak out about it, but, hey, it works for us. So it sounds like music has been central to your life. Oh, totally. And it still is today. Um, my my wife's a singer and we we worked we do a lot of work together. We we play um we play a lot of stuff we play a lot of stuff in churches. Um, we've done quite a few weddings together. Um, and we first met on a on a music stage. So, you know, it was sort of it was meant to be. Sure. Um, I was six yeah, I was 17 when I met her. Yep. So we, we've been together for, I don't know, almost 32 years. Good. Um, we've been married 30 years at the end of this year. Congratulations. Um, 
thank you. And I know that that's that's nothing to be sneezed at in this in this like um, climate. But when you throw in the mix a kid with a disability um, and all the stuff that we've gone through with him, you know the statistics are stacked up against you. There, we are. You know, there's seventy percent of marriages break down because of a child with an intellectual disability or a disability itself. Yeah. Um, but we've managed to ride that through and. You know, our relationship, we were just saying the other day that, uh, you know, it's um, sometimes we hate each other, but we just don't hate each other on the same day. (laughs) 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 So, well, she puts up with all my idiosyncrasies and stuff. Um, My, my, you know, like, you know what it's like to be an amputee. Sometimes you just go like, I really don't want to do this and I don't want to be around people and I just hate everything and everybody. Um, and she's she's really come to terms with that really well. Um, when she was going through her breast cancer stuff, that really rocked me, and I struggled with that. Sure. Um, but, you know, our relationship is strong enough that if we can get through stuff like that, mate, there's nothing, nothing is going to... Um, there's nothing that can break that, yep. you know. Um we both have a, we both have strong faith. Um, we're not um, we're not religious people, but we have a faith. Sure. Um, we and and I think that that's a lot of difference. I'm not a real big fan of churches. Um, I find a lot of churches to be very hypocritical. Um, but I have a, I have a I do have a very strong faith, and I've got a lot of very strong Christian friends. Um, and one one of them was my was the guy who helped me work through all my stuff as an amputee. Sure. Um, who, not only was he a, a pastor in a church, but he was also an amputee, and he's also a qualified psychotherapist. So, um, you know, I, I believe you're put in a place to do something. you just got to find out what it is. Yep. Uh, and, and whatever you say or whatever you do is going to help somebody if you wanted to help them. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. So music, yes, music is like a really big thing. I um, music is my stress relief. Music is my my go to. Um, it's the way I express myself. Um, one of the one of the uh, ladies that I work with here in Perth is a she's a wheelchair user. Um, she calls me her one legged sax player, um, <laughs> which, I, which um, is actually my. It's also my LinkedIn profile name and also my Facebook on my Facebook page. That's fantastic. Uh, so you know, she, she coined that for me, um, and she calls Kay um, the voice of an angel. So you know, it's it, 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 when you when you're talking about that sort of respect, um, that's really cool. And people get to, um, and and that's nice. It's nice to have that respect and that that acknowledgement. Yep. Um, so and especially and I find that our community is a lot like that, you know, like our, all the the disabled folks that I work with and the disabled folks that I that you know I do peer support for and all that all the other stuff that I do, um, they they are thankful for that and they don't take it for granted. For sure. Um, whereas some of the able-bodied folks that I know do take stuff for granted and and look and that includes my family. I mean, you know, I I don't have a very close relationship with my older brothers and I and I because they don't really understand why I did what I did. Yeah. Um and in as much as having my leg chopped off because they they didn't get it. Yeah. Um 
and as an amputee, you understand what I'm talking about with yep. with getting it because it's about for me it was about getting to a place where I wasn't in pain anymore, um, and were using substances that I probably shouldn't have been using to try and kill the pain, um, and then having to make that decision. You know what? If I don't take charge and control of this then I'm letting life happen to me rather than making it happen myself. Yeah, it's good so, to take charge sometimes. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And and Dale, my therapist, um, the pastor guy, he was amazing. And he said to me straight up, he said, you are, uh, you are 100% in control of this. You don't understand something, ask. If you don't know something, ask. Yep. You know, don't let people do for you, you know. Um, and he And I think... Um, Gary, the one of the, he said to he said to Kay one time, whatever you do, don't do things for Andrew that he can do for himself, because mm-hmm. then then you do then you're looking at learned helplessness, um, and you don't want that either. You you know you you got to help him. You got to help him, but get him to do things that he can do on his own, um, which is which is cool. You know, yeah, that's good advice. It is good advice, isn't it? And you know, I'm, I'm always going to be very grateful to him, and we, we stay in regular contact. Um, I probably I probably speak to him a couple of times a month, and and you know, and we're now what three and a half years down the track since my amputation. So, um, yeah, it's all good. It is it, it, in that in that way, it's really really good. Yeah, sure. So, tell us what led up to your amputation in 2015. What led up to it? In what aspect? What was what was why did why in 2015 was a, a decision made to amputate your leg? Uh, okay, um, I some stage in 2000 and in in the year 2000, a big pardon in 2010, I picked up an infection right in my foot, and they managed to control it with antibiotics, but. If you know the anatomy of a foot, there, there's there's fluid there's fluid sacs in your in uh, just underneath your toes. That's right. On on your feet, and apparently what had happened was the infection had got into there and it just stays dormant, and then it comes back if there's too much pressure put on the spot, so it broke down again. And yep. this was on and off and on and off for five years. Um. I'd been, I was admitted to hospital three times in that five years. At one stage, I was on um, antibiotics. On a, I had a PIC line inserted twice. The second time was um, antibiotics they give to people who have terminal cancer. Right. Uh, so, and, you know, like if the infection hadn't killed me, those antibiotics were going to kill me. Yeah, eventually. All my... My all my insides started to pack up as well. My liver, my liver wasn't working properly. My spleen wasn't working properly. Um, I was I was getting more and more sick from having the antibiotics, which is bizarre, but that's what they do. Yeah. Um, it was just killing my immune system. So I was under the care of an infectious diseases doctor by the name of Clay Gollidge, and he was the he was like the head of infectious diseases here in Western Australia and he'd seen me three times and the third time I was in St John's Hospital, St John St John of God Hospital in Subiaco and he poked his head in the door and he said, Andrew, and I said, Clay and he says, 
um, back again for the same thing, right? And I said, yep. And he said, okay, cool. And he said, well, what do you think? And I said, oh, I reckon it's time for it to go. And he goes, yeah, I think that's probably about right. Yeah. The, the infection had started to track up the inside of my leg. Yes. Um, so it then became, oh, this is now sort of urgent that we need to do something about this. I'd seen a, um, uh, what do you call them, bone doctors, um, an orthopedic surgeon, sure. and he'd done some surgery on it as well, and that didn't work. Um, and then he said, oh, I can, like, rebuild the bones in your foot, because by this stage, we'd start osteomyelitis had set in. Um, it started to eat the bones away in my feet. My The bones were busted up. I couldn't walk on the damn thing. Yeah. The infection kept coming back. But same story, you know, and, and, and I, I just I couldn't have the pain anymore. I came home from work one day and I was in tears when I walked in the door and I took my boot off and I took my shoe off and like chunks of my feet came off with it. Oh, God. Off with my sock and I said, and and, and the smell, seriously, it was like rotten meat. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, um, I ended up in emergency department at uh, Sir Charles Gardner Hospital on Christmas, on Boxing Day. Right. Of uh, 2014. And they like, oh, we, and they, so they admitted me there. Um, then they sent me home after four days, with, and again with another pick line in. Uh, then I was admitted into St. into St. John of God's in Subiaco in February, in uh, Peter Pardon, January of 2015, um, to uh, under the care of a vascular surgeon. And he had a look at it and said, oh, uh, uh, um, you know, not really sure what I want to do this. Blah, blah, blah. So there's a whole bunch of other doctors. I had a rehab doctor, my infectious diseases guy, the vascular surgeon, the orthopedic surgeon, and they're all like thrown. And I just, I said, you know what? This has just got knobs on it. I want it done. Yeah. Sure. Um, so, so they decided that um, the vascular surgeon ended up going away to Europe um, for an emergency thing. And he was supposed to tell me before he went what he decided. <laughs> and it was a Wednesday afternoon, uh, Sunday afternoon, um, the 20, 21st of February. Right. Um, I, we, were, we were working at our rental property, the one that we sold and uh, ended up selling. And I had a phone call from uh, a lovely lady. And she goes, oh, my name's Dr. Whatever, whoever it was. And I don't remember her name. And she says, oh, I'm your um, anaesthetist. Oh, wow. And I said, what for? Um, and she goes, oh, you're booked in to have a, a, a transtibial amputation done on, on um, Wednesday. I said, what? <laughs> I, the, surgeon, <laughs> the surgeon hadn't even told me. And as far as I knew, he wasn't even in the country. Yeah. And I said, okay, cool. Um, yeah, that's nice. All right. So um, what do you want me to do? She says, oh, I need you to come into hospital, like to St. John of God's Hospital tomorrow. And I said, well, I can't do that. And she goes, she goes why? And I said, because I've got to work. I said, I can't just turn around and come into hospital and have my leg chopped off. I said, you know, a little bit of notice would have been good so I can, you know, get someone to cover my work. And blah, blah, blah. And she goes, well, uh, um, how about Tuesday? I said, well, how about Tuesday then? And she goes, yeah, Tuesday at 8 o'clock in the morning. I said, Tuesday at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. How does that sound? <laughs> well, she, said, she goes, you're scheduled for surgery on Wednesday morning at 8 o'clock. 
I said, well, that's plenty of time. That's like more than, that's like 16 hours. You're 14 hours. You're good. Yep. And so she was like, oh, okay, whatever. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I, I didn't have a lot of um, notice of the fact that I was going in to have it done, which was probably a good thing because then I couldn't freak out yeah, and decide I wasn't going to have it done. Um, so I didn't have time to think about it. But it turned out, um, you know, um, I didn't actually see the the guy who actually chopped my leg off. Um, his name's Stefan Panos. Great bloke, really nice guy. I didn't see him until 10 past 8 on Wednesday morning. They'd already prepped me for surgery. And so I didn't even sign the consent form to say he could chop my leg off. <laughs> <laughs> so so I've I, like already been like pre-medded yeah. for, for, for to be put under. And I'm trying to sign this bloody consent form in in the like in the waiting bay before they go in and do this surgery. So I didn't see him until I rolled into the actually rolled into theatre. Um, and he and he was like, "Hey, Andrew, Stephen," and then he said, "Just sit up on here." And then the anaesthetist comes in. She she like sits me up on the table, and I was leaning forward, and that's all I remember until. Um, what forty five minutes later, or they 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 brought me out into recovery and uh, minus the bottom half of my leg. Yeah, it doesn't so, take long, does it? It doesn't, and, and like people are like, you know, forty five minutes. And I said, yeah, well, I mean, really think about it. It's only a couple of bones and a bit of skin, so you know, I mean, it's not that much of a big deal. But then again, when you're talking veins and all that sort of stuff, so you got yeah, to veins, yeah, anyway. muscles, arteries. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, they know what they're doing. So it was like, yeah, okay. Um, so that's where, that's how I ended up. That's, yeah. Um, I was, and I was back in my room by 11 o'clock. Goodness me. Um, and then I came home six days later. Goodness me. Um, I didn't bother going to rehab. Um, I've, I've, I've done outpatients rehab, but I didn't go to like a rehab facility. Yep. Um, because I, 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 because I spent, I, because I spent six months prior working on my fitness level and, and, and I knew so much about what I was going to happen and what, how it was all going to work anyway, because I just spent hours and hours and hours researching, um, about amputations and what to expect and talking to people. And so I was fully aware of what to expect. Yep. Um, until until you come home, and then you realise that it doesn't matter how much research you do. You, once you're in your own home, you've got to start working out stuff for yourself. You know, um, and I've had my I've had my fair share of falls, and you know, things like that. But I'm sure there's going to be more in my future <laughs> as I get older. <laughs> gravity, gravity sucks. It doesn't adjust. But luckily, <laughs> the house that we live in has got wooden floors, so oh. you know, I'm a big like. I'm a big bloke anyway, but at least I bounce on the wooden floors. Yeah, true. But I must have hit the concrete floor in the bathroom. That hurt when I hit the floor there. <laughs> 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 I'm never doing that one again because that actually broke another bone. So, oh, that was that was a that was a nasty. You know, you, I was I was wandering through the house on my crutches, and and um, I never really got a, the hang of crutches. I don't like crutches. I never have done. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, so I'm like wandering through the house and I'd been in the toilet, come out of the toilet and I saw this little piece of material on the floor and my, my mind, in my mind, I can, it's like I can see it. It was so visual. 
don't put your crutch on that because if you do, it's going to fall out from underneath you. You're going to end up rolling and landing on the concrete floor. Yep. And then, like, 10 seconds later, what happened? Yeah, I put my crutch on the piece of material. Exactly what I... Yeah. And you know what? Ended up breaking the... the uh, what is it? It's called the greater trochanter. That's right. Which is the top the top bone of your hip. That's so right. I, I, I snapped the top off that. Yep. And it's like, yeah, okay. Hurt like a bitch. Yep. That one hurt like hell. I mean, that was even... That was worse than getting the damn leg chopped off. Yep. That's a pretty, pretty... <laughs> For, for everyone that's listening, that's a very thick bone. It is. But, as I said, I'm a big bloke, and when I hit the floor, I hit hard. <laughs> <laughs> so if I'm going to fall over, I prefer, like, wooden floors are good, grass is good. Um, um, oh, yeah, there's all sorts of stuff that I'd rather, you know, trampolines are okay. Trampolines are great. <laughs> but concrete floor, nah, forget oh. it. Hey, that, that, that hurts too much. <laughs> So tell me what your daughter wants to do when you die. Oh, <laughs> what my daughter wants to do when I die. Did I write Oh, yeah, I did write that question. Okay, we were having a discussion. Um, I've got some very expensive saxophones um, in my collection. And we were talking about, one, one time when she was home for, for leave, we were talking about what, what we could do when the old man carked it, and, and it was like she goes, "Well, I'm not, I'm not going to um, like bury your saxophones with you, like you said you wanted." And I said, "Hey, that's okay." I mean, it was a family conversation, you know. We were just like shooting the breeze, you know, the four of us. Yeah. And um, and I said, "Okay, that's fine." So, what are you going to do with them? And she said, "Well, we could turn them into light stands and stuff." I mean, we're not talking about. And I said, that's got to be the most expensive light stand you'll ever see in your life. <laughs> you know, I mean, one of my saxophones is worth 13 grand. Yeah. So, um, and I said, nah. I said, what you want to, what you want to do, you can either flog them off, because I'm dead, I don't really care, but you flog them off or give them, find some of my old students and give them one. As like, here's Andrew's departing gift to you. Sure. You know, my old horn. And she goes, and then she goes, so what are you going to do with your leg? And I said, what do you mean, what am I going to do with it? She said, well, you can't get, like, buried with it because I want to be cremated and have my ashes um, on the sea. That was my, that's in my will, right? Yep. And being Navy, again, the same thing, you can't take the, the Navy out of the man. Um, and um, she said, but that, the, the titanium won't melt. And I said, well, it'll melt. But that, I'm thinking, well, then again, maybe it won't be hot enough to melt it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So she said, I know what I'm going to do. She said, I'm going to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take your socket and I'm going to get you, I'm going to, we'll, we'll burn you and then I'm going to put your ashes in the socket and seal it up. Oh, very good idea. And turn it into a, like a, and put a, a lid on it, a flat lid on it. Yeah. And then turn it like into a coffee stand, like a, a coffee stand. And she said, that way, anywhere I go, anywhere in the world, I can take you with me. <laughs> <laughs> and just like clock you in the corner and I thought how cool is that <laughs> that's a great idea I might just steal that offer oh look seriously I, I, it's like yeah I, that, that's my daughter she's got a six sense of humour just like me because I thought <laughs> I had never thought about that and I thought that is such a cool idea because then she could have me for the rest of my, or, or Kay can have me if I and she could stick me next to the bed. She could stick me outside in the sun. <laughs> no answering back either. 
No, that's right, mate. They, they have no issues. They don't have to go to the hospital anymore. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> so what's what's next for Andrew Fairburn? What's next for me? Okay. Um, look, I'm I'm back studying again now. I'm I'm doing. I was um, privileged enough to be offered a spot on a course called Assistive Technology Mentor, right. um, which is a, a certificate four course run by Assistive Technology Australia, uh, which is an, uh, an arm of the Independent Living Centre. And that course is a 12-month, let's say, 12-month certificate for... The qualification for that will be um, help me in my... Um, what I, in what I want to do is I want to help people be able to access stuff that they can use and it's good for them, rather than having to be told, you've got to have this because. Um, there's a lot of... Uh, I, I, I'm going to... I've just started my own business again. I've just registered another business name, um, which is cool, another one, which is called Lose the Awkward. And that's going to be about communication. And the assistive technology stuff is going to fit into that really well in as much as lose the awkward about the conversation and let's just have a, just sit down and have a chat about what you need and what's the best thing to have and how can we make it work for you. So the business plan's there, the idea's there. Um, I've got to work out how I can get it funded um, and I'm hoping that from what I understand where NDIA is going with assistive technology, mm-hmm. that they'll actually, um, I, I may be able to get either work with them or be um, be able to get funded through um, participants' plans yep. for, for to run to be an AT mentor. And so then, so that's sort of what I'm working towards. Um, as far uh, personally, um, I've got... You know, I've got I've got a couple of goals that I want to hit before I hit, before I turn fifty um, in January. Um, I want to get myself a little a bit a little bit better in shape, and that starts on Friday when I go back and see my physiotherapist because um, I know she's going to hammer me. Um, <laughs> I'm going to be <laughs> really sore after I finish with her. Um, but I'd like to get back in the gym and do some exercise and stuff like that. I've been really slack in that aspect for the last six months. Um, I want to do some more travelling. We got a Kay and I, as I say, um, we went over to the east coast. We spent three months on the road, just the two of us. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time in our married life that we've actually been away together by ourselves, yep, um, without our kids and stuff. So we'd love to do some more of that and do some more travelling. And that that's that's a bucket list thing, but it's also a, uh, a thing which is really good for us because we get time to to share our stuff with each other. Um, you know, work-wise, I'm really excited about the work that I'm doing with people with disabilities, WA at the moment, and I really hope that I can get this project extended from our funding body you know, to run it at least for another year. Sure. Um, uh, that, but that's not up to me. That's up to the funding gods to see, you know, um, and hopefully um, I'm smashing the KPIs at the moment, so hopefully I will, I will be, um, it'll be recognised that it's worthwhile and that it's actually making a difference um, because that's all under the um, information linkage capacity grant system and all that sort of stuff. So okay. um, that's all about funding. Um, 
I'm, I'm on the, I sit on the, I love the fact that Mel thought enough about me to ask me to join the National Amputee Advisory Council. Um, and that's something that I'm, I'm really excited about the systemic advocacy work. Sure. Um, so looking, looking more, instead of doing sort of like one on one, one on one advocacy, which is, which don't get me wrong, is really, really important. But it's something that I've already done a lot of, so I'm up for the next challenge, and that's looking at systemic advocacy. Um, so I think that national councils are a really good avenue for that for me. Um, I also sit on the board. Um, I'm the West Australian representative for P uh, Physical Disabilities Australia. Yep. Um, and I also am the vice chair of People with Disabilities Western Australia. So... That that sort of level of um, I'm looking at different boards and how I can get involved in that sort of systemic advocacy and systemic training and growth and getting people to be more aware of diversity and how bringing someone with a disability onto a board can help them, help their board. Um, bringing them into their organisations can help them um, in, in ways, it helps to build their capacity in understanding and, and being um, diverse. And we live in such a diverse um, culture as it is. I mean, for an example, um, Kay and I were at an NDIS rollout meeting yesterday. There was 22 people in the room from 14 different countries. Yeah, right. So, and, and that's pretty um, across the board for the area that we live in. Um, the school that she teaches at has um, uh, 44 different language groups. Sure. Which, and so, you know, diversity is a way of life and it's, and it's a thing. And that's something that, you know, there's, there's people out there with disabilities who come from, um, from countries that most people have never heard of. Yep. And you know, English is their fourth or fifth or sixth or seventh language. So how, where is their representation and how are they looked after yep. um, in, those, in those particular arenas? So, yeah, so, so that, that for me there, um, you look, I, I love my family. I love being with my kids. I mean, I say they're kids. My kids are 28 years old, so they're adults. Well, my you know, kids are older I, than that, so I, no, I still call my kids the kids. They're always going to be, mate, you know. Um, I, love, I love sharing my son's life and what he's doing, you know. He works in hospitality. He... He works at the Perth Convention Centre. He works at the NIB Stadium where they play the rugby. And he also works at Optus Stadium, uh, at the new Optus Stadium. He's, he was one of the first staff members put on there. Very and not bad, not bad for, for a kid with an intellectual disability, you know what I mean? Excellent. Um, um, it lasts, he, was at the, he, he was working a cash bar at Optus Stadium last weekend with the Collingwood Eagles game. Um, and, you know, so uh, that stuff I like to share with them. You know, my daughter, um, she's at a stage now where she's looking at getting transitioning out of the army. Um, and she's just applied for a couple of jobs with NDIA in Queensland. Right. Um, so, you know, they're sort of, she's sort of taken a leaf out of my book and working in the disability sector. And she wants to go work in there and because she understands it. I mean, she's got a dad. She's got her brother. She's always been around guys um, all, all her life. She's been around people with disabilities, so she sort of gets them. Um, 
and and she's going to be an asset there. So my, my family unit is really important to me, and I think, you know, I, I would die a happy man if, you know, my family... We, we, I've, I've tried my butt, I've my butt to make sure that they're going to be set up and looked after, um, and I can't ask for any more, you know. I mean, both of them, both my kids are, are, are doing what they need to do, and they're doing it well, and they're polite, and they're respectful, and they're, they're law-abiding. And I know that sort of sounds corny and cheesy, but, you know, I think as a, as a parent, you go, that's a tick. Now I can be their friend and, and enjoy times with them. I don't have to be their parents so much anymore because they're grown up. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, I mean, I know that sounds, it sounds a bit cheesy, but it is what it is, you know. Um, it's really important to me. The family unit's really, really important to me. Um, what's going to change next year? Mate, I turn 50 next year. I don't know. I just certainly hope no, no more bits and pieces start falling off. You know what I mean? <laughs> Um, <laughs> I've, been, I've, been, I've been doing the 50s thing for a while now, and I can guarantee you it's not that bad. Oh, that's awesome. That's good to know. That's good to know. I, 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 said, I, I said to my mum, my mum's 85, um, and I said to her the other day, we took to see Aladdin, um, the stage show. Yep. Um, our daughter bought me tickets for Father's Day, and um, I took my mum, and I've got a photo. There's a photo of us on Facebook, and my mum said to me, she said, I can't believe that 50 years ago I gave birth to you because I, I've got I've got about oh what mate I could probably arm curl her body weight um, <laughs> she, she, she's fairly light weight you know what I mean um, and I as I say I'm a pretty big guy so it, yeah so she's um I can't believe that <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that I gave birth to you anyway that's all good so yeah my family's family's good for me I I'm. I'm super excited about going to Canberra next year for the um, amputee conference. That should be fun. It's going to be. I'm so I'm so looking forward to it. I already bought my tickets. I've got my hotel room organised. Um, speaking to a couple of blokes that I know in Victoria, uh, uh, Jeff Chandler is one of them. Um, he's he's doing a thing like a guided walk around Lake Burley Griffin, and I'm just I'm just really excited to catch up with some people. You know, West Australia is like awful long way away from the rest of the country. You know. We have West Australia is a very parochial state. Um, we it's it's different living here, it really is. Um, and we uh, and I'm just like I'm super excited to meet some meet some of the people that I know off Facebook that I've you know that I've met and we've talked on online and stuff like that. And actually to get to meet them face to face is going to be awesome. Um, so and that's I suppose that to me you know. Other amputees in my community, and they're my people. You know, I I, um, I call them my tribe because we're we're a group of people that understand each other, and we can make our own poles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, exactly. Legless totem poles—that'd be awesome. And armless ones as well. Um, you know, you don't. It doesn't matter where you go. Um, you know, on our travels, we we came across a whole bunch of different amputees in different places around Australia, and. It doesn't matter where you go; you've got something in common, and it's a, it's a it's a it's a thing that can start a conversation. Um, so we met some great people, and 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 they were other amputees, you know. And you go, if it wasn't for that, would I have the? Is that you know? I, I suppose I've got I've got fairly good people skills, and I love people. Um, but some of the conversations may never have happened, and if, and if it's just because of being an amputee, then that's that's cool. You know what I mean? Yeah. Sure. One of one of the um, best experiences I've had 
um, as an amputee was going to the um, American conference yep. in um, Minneapolis. And as you can imagine, that was huge. I, um, I, 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 it blows up. Seriously, that's another bucket list thing for me. Yep. Well, the hotel was, the hotel was completely booked out by amputees. Um, the, the, the hotel was where the conference was as well. And it was a matter of you, you got up in the morning and you went down um, for breakfast or whatever, and um, the, the lift would be packed with amputees. Now, you know, Australia is a pretty big country and you don't often see amputees because, you know, we're kind of, there's not that many of us, really. Um, so, so the people that do see us in shorts or whatever, they have a, they have a good old stare or what happened to you or whatever. Yeah. In, yep, in, yep. in this lift going down for breakfast, it was like, nice leg. Yeah, yours, good too. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a completely different world. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think you'll very much enjoy Canberra. Um, I've done a couple of conferences and, and I'm, I'm happy to say that they've changed my outlook. And I wouldn't say they've changed my life because being an amputee is for life. Um, but they've definitely yep. changed my outlook on being an amputee. Well, I, I did get the opportunity to go to Melbourne um, in 2016. Yep. Um, but that was, I was I was back walking um, about four months um, before I got back up and was walking again. But then I fell over and busted my hip. So I, I went to Melbourne. Um, in fact, it was only about a week before we were leaving to go to Melbourne for the conference that I did this and ended up breaking me the top of my head. Yeah. And <clears throat> so I didn't get as much out of it as I would have liked because I was in so much friggin' pain. Um, so this time around, I'm going to wrap myself up in cotton wool so I don't do any damage until <laughs> next year um, when, I, when I go to Canberra. So that's going to be... I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I, I think that um, I'm encouraging... Uh, they, we have a... Um, a fairly strong amputee peer support group here in WA, yep. um, and I'm encouraging the guys, if you know, to to, to get on to some of the places they can get um, funding grants and stuff like that. To because it's not cheap, and it, it's it, it has cost me a lot of money to get there. Yep. But I think just being a part of it is it gives you a bigger picture of what of where you fit into the scheme and and. I know that this time round, obviously because I have the inside track with the with the council, I know what's what Mel's planning and, and stuff like that. Um, so it's going to be done by real people with real life situations where you know you go to some conferences and stuff, and it's and it's like just people talking at you. But these guys that I know, you know what Mel's got planned is going to be awesome because it's going to be real world stuff that you can use every day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's okay. Um, yeah, so, you know, that's that's sort of it. You know, um, I, I like to hang out with people who are positive, who are motivated. And they don't, I mean, I'm not talking about, like, as the inspiration part of life, but I'm just talking about people who have got, you know, uh, a, a positive outlook on life. Sure. And even though the, we go through a whole bunch of stuff, and, you know, when you, when you talk about having an amputation done, when you talk about, you know, trying to find the right stuff that might work for you so you can get back on your feet and all that sort of stuff. Having positive people around you to help you to, to work through stuff like that has, has done me an amazing amount of good.
Yep. Amazing amount of good. Yeah. Well, thank you so very much for your time, mate. I really appreciate it. No worries. Um, for those listening, um, if you can rate us on iTunes or download, submit a comment um, or listening to us on whatever podcast channel you use, um, podcast apps all around the place, and I'm happy to receive your comments and ratings on iTunes. It really does help. Um, so we'll wind it up there, Andrew, and I want to thank you so very much for your time and so being so very open. No worries at all, Gary. It's been my pleasure, and I look forward to seeing you in Canberra next year. We'll, we'll actually um, maybe be in Perth for Christmas and New Year, so we might even catch up before then. Well, mate, if you're coming over and you need a, you need a place to put your head down, I've got plenty of spare rooms. <laughs> thank you very much. No worries at all, mate. You take care of yourself, yeah? Yeah, you too. Wait, Have a great, great night, mate. Talking to you. See you, mate. Cheers. Bye.